Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Michael Torkey's music has been hailed as some of the most optimistic, joyful, and thoroughly uplifting music to appear in recent years by Gramophone. And the composer has been commissioned by such orchestras as the Philadelphia Orchestra, the New York Philharmonic, and the San Francisco Symphony, and by ballet and opera companies around the world, including the Met and the English National Opera. He has been commissioned by the likes of Disney and Absolute Vodka, has written incidental music for the Old Globe Theatre, and has been composer-in-residence with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. Beginning his career with exclusive contracts with Boozy and Hawks and Decca Records, he now controls his own copyrights and masters through his publishing company, Adjustable Music, and record company, Ecstatic Records. Hailed as a vitally inventive composer by the Financial Times and a master orchestrator whose shimmering timbral palette makes him the revel of his generation by the New York Times, Michael Torkey's recent work Sky, written for violinist Tessa Lark, was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize and was nominated for a Grammy for Best Classical Instrument Solo. I'm so excited to welcome composer Michael Torkey to One Symphony today. Michael, it's so great to be talking with you. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Devin. I would love to start asking you, what's the last music you listened to or concert you attended or what music is in your head right now? I spend half of the year in New York and half in Las Vegas. And so when I'm here, I go to concerts. But the strange thing on this particular visit, mid-September to mid-October, I haven't been to one concert. I've been proofreading a big project, and so I put on music in the background, and it's either the Columbia years of Frank Sinatra in the 40s, or it's Abato doing the Mahler cycle, or it's Progressive House, different mixes that you can find on YouTube. That's cool. Yeah, I'm fascinated with that question, especially with your answer of Mahler, because when I listen to music, it's usually not classical music, because symphonic orchestral music is so engaging to all the senses. And that's one of the things I love about your music. You're an American icon in the classical music world and known abroad in this kind of post-minimalist style, but changing enough to where it keeps you engaged, but focused at the same time, focused maybe not just on music, but thinking about other things and almost like the Mozart effect that they always talk about for babies, like kind of inspiring your brain to go off into uncharted territory. And it wouldn't bother me if someone used my music in other ways than 100% focused attention. If someone put it on when they were driving just to 
make the time go by. Oh, I mean, it's um, I, I don't want to say that it's Muzak for intellectuals. So a friend of mine in L.A. said that comment. The idea that when I'm like doing hours and hours of proofreading, I really don't like it when things are stopping and starting like in a symphony, a Mozart symphony. The movements are so short. It's like, why can't it go on? You almost just want to put on the ring cycle just so it will go on and on and on. And there's a side of me that thinks even though our attention span is so low these days, so short these days, that to write pieces of music that go on for a long time is kind of welcome. It's counterintuitive, but that's something that I yearn for. you about the idea of, of colors and simplicity. You're famously known for having synesthesia, this merging of the senses when different senses come mm-hmm. together. And I'm thinking of bright blue music, uh, but you also have other pieces like you know purple, yellow pages, ecstatic orange, very highly associated with colors. But in bright blue music, not only is it color oriented, it's all in D major, but it barely modulates. And nobody would know that if I, I feel if you're not attuned to keys structure, you're a musician really mm-hmm. hearing the harmonies in your ears. To the average listener, I feel like the piece is, a, is an exciting concert opener that keeps the orchestra engaged, keeps the audience engaged. Could you kind of talk about the art of simplicity in, in your music or music in general? Yeah, I think that the way to communicate is to be as simple as possible the great ideas and the great thoughts and the great feelings tend to be the more universal ones and something that 8 billion people on earth can all kind of relate to. It tends to not be reductive, but tends to be very straightforward ideas. You know, love, maternity, aging, these sorts of things are all very complex ideas, but they're very simple as an idea. Certainly the primary colors are simple and the mixing of primary colors gets more and more complex hues in everyday life. But when it came to synesthesia, which is for me involuntarily seeing color when I hear certain keys or pitches. And so the key of D major has always been blue ever since I was five years old. So I had this idea in, in college where you know, you're studying music and, and people are, professors are telling you about form and sonata form, you establish a room. I remember one professor saying that, and then you move away from the room. That's the development section. And then you come back to the room as the recapitulation. And I thought that was a great analogy. But of course, I was thinking if you go to a great party on Saturday night, why would you ever want to leave? So why is it? <laughs> that we just assume you have to leave the room. What if you wrote a piece where you never left the room? And if it were in D major, you celebrated D major from beginning to end. Could that work formally when all of our history shows that formally that shouldn't work? And that was the um, challenge for me when I was writing those pieces back in my 20s. But what was funny about it, talk about universality, is that when audiences or interviewers or conductors or musicians wanted to talk about it, they always wanted to talk about the experience of blue. And I said, no, it it really has nothing to do with blue. That's just my personal association. It's all about the form. 
But that is something that people don't really like to talk about. You are one of the first who said, and the piece doesn't modulate. Most people don't talk about that. And in a way, maybe it's okay that people don't talk about it because people experience music you know, in many ways, and you don't have to be aware of what key you're in. But for me, that's how I experienced it. Another very obviously important important aspect of consequential implication of all of our lives, whether or not it exists as science is discovering, is the concept of time. You said that time slips away as we age and music offers a security against the ravages of time. In the pandemic, you have these two albums, Time and Being, which you recorded in various places with the same same musicians. You kind of took advantage of the constraints that were thrown at you, like any great yeah. composer does. Can you kind of talk about the concept of time and how that relates to your newest album, Time, and then cool. Being from 2019? Especially in Time, uh, I remember early on in the pandemic, escaping from the house and driving around the neighborhoods of Las Vegas just to try to get out of you know, we were all going a little bit nuts. And I was listening to a classic minimal piece, uh, Steve Reich's uh, 18 Musicians. And I was thinking that the idea of a motive or a musical idea that keeps recurring almost in waves is very, it has a tranquilizing, but more than tranquilizing, it doesn't put us to sleep. It makes us, it sort of calms the brain. It, it changes the brain chemistry to feel just a little bit better and more comfortable. It's almost like a medicine. And I thought I would like to write a piece that would just be about one idea. Could you do that over 45 minutes? Again, the approach to simplicity. Vary it enough that the listener would never be bored and structure it so that you would always know where you are in the piece and yet have the opportunity, if it were possible, to reset the brain and have the listener feel better. I wouldn't call it music therapy, but for instance, uh, when I listen to Bach, my the brain chemistry resets, and I don't know why. There's just something about Bach's music that make me that makes me feel better. And I was wondering, could I do it with the kinds of musical materials that I uh, enjoy using? Have that same sort of possible uh, effect? Now, how it's different from being uh, being uses these same kinds of rhythms that you find in progressive house and there are certain recurrent things but there are nine parts to being and i have nine different ideas and i remember when i finished that i was happy with the nine ideas but i said well what i mean i failed you should be able to do that with one idea nine ideas that's cheating so that was the whole goal of could i do what i was trying to do in being but do it with one idea now, when people hear the five spans, those are the five movements, they might say, I hear five different ideas. But what I did is I took the motive and I just shifted it by a 16th and, and brought the beginning part over. It's a two-bar motive that you hear, dun, 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 dun. And so then the second movement is, dun, 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 which is just, it's, it's not reordering. It's just putting the third part to the sixth and then starting again at the first and the second bit of that musical idea. And in a way, it sounds completely new. And in another way, the brain understands, yeah, but we've heard that before. And yet it's so same but different is sort of the mantra in any kind of compositional thinking. And that takes it to an extreme. ¶¶ 
I'm curious about your concept of rhythm. You know, when we think of composers like Stravinsky or even John Adams or, or even some of your music, this idea that you can hear a piece and the rhythm is constructed in such a way that it doesn't actually always look on the page like it does when you hear it. I guess it depends on your who you are. But in especially in being, you decided to have a consistent time all the way throughout, 126 beats per minute. When you sit down to write a piece, and maybe this is just in being or, or any other piece, what is the first thing that comes? Is the conception of tempo? Is the conception of rhythm? Does it all come at once? Or has that changed over the course of your compositional output? Well, in these three projects, see, between being and time, I did a vocal album called Psalms and Canticles. And that also has the same tempo. Quarter note equals 126. So three albums. And guess what? I'm working on a fourth for full orchestra. Quarter note equals 126 from beginning to end. And it's going to be a tetralogy of these sorts of ideas. So I would say that, yes, I start with the tempo and I start with the rhythms. And then the rhythms might suggest harmonies, but then the melodies always come out of the rhythms in relation to the harmonies that I have. And in all four of these pieces, I use very kind of straightforward pop harmonies that you might find in 1970s pop music, which surprised some of my listeners where I was either going to do like in the early color pieces, just triadic harmony, or in some later harm, uh, pieces, more pan-diatonic, but complex harmonies. But these are in a way, simple 1970s pop harmonies. And so then all three elements, the rhythm, the melodies, and the harmonies are working together. And what was your relation to pop music? Because I know that you were very classically oriented as a young composer and as you started composing at five. But in listening to your music, one would think that you have just as much pop in you as you do, you know, Tchaikovsky or Berio or Philip Glass or Steve Reich or any other composers like that. Could you talk about that relationship and has that evolved over time? Well, one way to think about it, um, and I hope that this is accurate, when I got to college, I went to Eastman School of Music, which I loved, and there were a, a class of composers that we hung out till dawn discussing life and you know philosophy. And a lot of them would say that when they were in high school or junior high, they started their rock bands. You know, and they played all this kind of music, jazz and rock. And then they come to college and they're like, OK, put aside those childish ways. Now we enter into the Elysian Cathedral of classical music. And for me, I never liked popular music when I was growing up as a kid. I, I hated rock music. And to me, classical music was everything. When I got to Eastman and started studying contemporary practices in music, especially some of the more highly chromatic, dissonant, aleatoric music and serial music. It struck me that the music that was being written, you could appreciate and enjoy in a kind of an intellectual distance, like it was arm's length away. You would have to kind of use a part of your brain to get into it. And then I thought, well, why is that different from when I put on Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony? I don't feel like it's an arm's length away. In fact, it's much closer. I immediately understand what's going on. And then when I put on, at the time, it was like Al Jarreau or Michael Jackson. It's like immediately in your face. I thought that's what we need to restore in contemporary concert music. It's been too far removed. People thought that in my trying to do that, I was being anti-intellectual, which was the furthest from my mind because Tchaikovsky is just as intellectual as Berio, and yet it's half the distance that I'm talking about from the immediacy. So it has nothing to do with whether 
One is exercising that a mathematical part of your brain or a philosophical part of your brain. It's how the music is acting to your ears. And so in that sense, pop music was a discovery of in my early 20s and trying to figure out, well, what are they doing that's making the music so in my face? And maybe that's a good quality. One of the newer albums that you have is as in your face as American music can get. I just want to talk about Sky from 2019. This is your bluegrass concerto, but it also has West, which is a bassoon concerto, South, an oboe concerto, and East, a clarinet. Uh, (laughs) You're working with the Kentuckian fiddler Tessa Lark on this, and you also worked with her on Spoonbread, which was a duo for violin and piano. Can you talk about just the conception of that and maybe how the first album or collaboration led to the next? Out of the blue, Tessa contacted me in 2017 to write a violin and piano piece, and I was delighted. She's a young, younger rising star, and I wrote a piece for violin and piano that used a lot of detaché, one bow stroke per note. And of course, I say in my program notes how this draws upon the Kentucky heritage of, of bluegrass music. And, and in a way, that was really stretching it because all Baroque music works that way of using detaché violin string of approach. And so we were recording it and I said, you know, Tessa, I feel kind of bad about those program notes because I'm not really tapping into your Kentucky heritage at all. But I know nothing about bluegrass music. You do. Part of her career is a a classical artist and the other part is a bluegrass artist. And I said, if you were to spend some time with me teaching me about that and I were to do my own study and I wrote you a piece, would you play it? And she said, yes. And the engineer said, and I'll record it. And so that was the basis of like, okay, let's do this project. Instead of waiting for a commission, we will just write something we want to do. And then we will find the orchestras to put money into it. We'll find them to hire Tessa. And it all worked out. 12 orchestras signed up. And I went online and I found out that these eight and nine-year-old kids, in order to learn bluegrass, it's an oral tradition. And so there's this app called the Amazing Slow Downer, where you can record something and then you can slow it down without losing the pitch. And then they could hear really slow how fiddle music works and then they could learn it. And I thought, oh, I want to get that app. And so I went right to banjo music. When you think of the that uh, theme song to the Beverly Hillbillies, I just think it's the most fantastic sound. And I thought, well, I want to transcribe that and just see how are those notes working. And when you do that, you really learn the nuts and bolts of like banjo picking. And then it occurred to me, why should you play that music on the banjo? Why couldn't you play that on the violin, which isn't fiddling? 
it's actually, you know, to be putting banjo music on a violin is not really what bluegrass fiddlers do. And so that was like the first departure from it. And I would bring ideas into Tessa and she would say, well, this doesn't work. And, then, and here, if you do it this way, that would work. And that kind of hands-on was, was really invaluable. And then we, we performed the piece and we recorded it. When I say it came out well, I mean that it, it felt good for her from a soloist and a violinist point of view. She said she feels very comfortable playing this and she enjoys playing it. And I thought, well, that's a good sign. If this piece has any chance to have legs, it has to feel right for the soloist. And she said that it does. Just, just kind of piggybacking off of the commissioning idea, you've been a household name in American music for decades, and you started in your 20s with a contract with Boozy and then Decca, and you were composer residence of the New York City Ballet at the age of 25. I would just love to hear, because you were talking about a consortium of 10 orchestras, which is, I think, incredible, because a lot of consortiums, it's, it's far fewer than that. Could you talk about sort of weathering the various tides that affect classical music and in our industry of performance and any kind of changes that you've observed and how your approach has changed to being a a sort of self-published composer now? Yeah, well, and there's many ways to talk about it. I, I mean, one of the biggest galvanizing things that happened to music was the digital revolution. At first, it was heralded, the classical folks, because that meant that you could put everything on CD And all of these record companies were flush because all of the classical people wanted to replace their vinyl with CDs. And and that's in a sense, I was in the right place at the right time because DECA started an offshoot label called Argo Records because they were awash in profits. And so they said to one of their lead producers, here, you record nothing but contemporary music. I mean, that never happens in the history of recorded music, that there would be a mandate to do new music. When Stravinsky's things were done, that was the extra money at Columbia Records that Godard Lieberson happened to make from West Side Story and things like that, that they could plow. But that was just one composer. This was industry-wide. Well, then little do you know, if you can put everything in ones and zeros, you can reproduce it. And starting with Napster and then going into streaming, there is nothing, there is no unique ownership by having ones and zeros on a disc anymore. It's everyone's music. And it took us, what, 20 years to figure out how to monetize that. And even then, a lot of popular and jazz and classical people will say it's all been done wrong, that we get 0.0001 cent per every stream. And unless you are the biggest hit uh, in Ariana Grande, you're not making any... So all the poor people now are all the rockers. And us classical people, we're sort of getting by because... Some of our income comes from orchestras, for instance, renting out the music and you get a rental order and then BMI and ASCAP pay very well for performance money of live music. But for the rockers, they got most of their income from mechanical royalties and all of that is, I mean, yes, they're doing the mechanical licensing collective is is now collecting digital mechanicals, 
But again, unless you're a monster hit, you're not going to make any kind of living from that. And so my approach over like an almost 40 year span of trying to keep my nose above the level of water to keep breathing is that you have to be super nimble. The world is always changing. Ideas are changing. Technologies are changing. And that you just can't be ever set in your ways and be ready to embrace I'm not saying necessarily new styles. I mean, new ways of presenting music, new technologies, new ideas, maybe of concert programming. And you're right. It goes up and down. I keep track of all my royalties. And the interesting thing is that over time, the royalties kind of just are steady. And fortunately, they've been going up. But in terms of year-to-year tax returns, the way that that just goes up and down, that's not for the faint of heart. Let's put it that way. So, I mean, I don't know what the answer is, except to always think like if you were starting off your career, I meet young composers. I met this guy last week, 25 year old. He's just starting out. And the way he's thinking about things is so fascinating. And we couldn't stop talking because I was like imagining myself. What if I was going to start my career today? What things would I have to do? How would I draw attention to my latest piece when I'm unknown? You can't rest on any laurels in this business because everything is just always turning over. And uh, so I got a lot out of that meeting because I just, I, I thought, no, that's the answer. I'm going to pretend that I'm starting as a 25-year-old composer. Stravinsky notoriously went through these various styles, like basically every 10 or 15 years. Do you think as a composer these days, it's easier to retain your unique voice? I think that that was a different time. And in the early to mid 20th century, there was this idea that the arts go through all of, I mean, look at the visual arts, how every 10 years, there was some new, whether it was pop art replacing abstract expressionism going into minimal art. I mean, it was just impossible to have any more than about five or seven years of notoriety in the visual arts world. And yet in music, and now it's happening this in visual arts, over the last 40 years, the style hasn't changed. It's still this kind of, uh, I don't know what the terms are in visual art, but I could say it this way. If you were to walk in in a time machine to a gallery in New York and the year was 1987 and you were to walk into a gallery today, 2022, you might see very much of the same kind of art. We haven't gone through these stylistic changes. And so that I write music in 1986 or 85, and then I play it to someone today, but they have never heard that piece. They're like, oh, is this a recent piece of yours? No, that's... 35 years old. And I think, wow, we're really in a strange time. And maybe I'm lucky because I can keep sort of my own style going and people are still maybe interested. 
But that could all change on a dime. And five years from now, we could have some galvanizing thing that's going to happen and all of my music will be passe. And so I'm lucky in that regard. I mean, another example is when Being came out, which we just talked about, I felt that I was doing something absolutely new that I had never done before in my career. And I can say it really simply that I always thought that you have to develop phrases in asymmetrical patterns so that maybe one phrase would be five bars. Brahms thinks about this a lot. And then the next might be three or four bars. And that that is the way that you can have a kind of an organic feel of flow. So I said, well, I'm going to write a whole piece of 45 minutes long. That's nothing but eight bar phrases. Just the hell with it. Just it's it. And of course, then you think, well, that's going to be really boxy. Well, then the challenge is, can the counterpoint weave in and out of that? And then there you get that sort of organic flow. So to me, this was revolutionary music. And I give it to some trusted listeners and, oh, well, you're doing just what you were doing in 1987 with my piece called Adjustable Wrench. And at first that made me angry, like, you don't understand. And then I thought, well, no, if they hear it as a kind of a bringing back of something earlier, whoa, that's their experience. That's their truth. And maybe that's a good thing. So in that sense, to answer your question, how do you retain a style or a voice? Well, I was trying not to retain it. And my listeners said there it was. So. That's kind of not answering your question, but in the way it is. It wasn't designed to be answered. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there you uh, go. <laughs> I, I want to piggyback on your idea of musical phrase length, because uh, that's something that I've I've been obsessed with for you know as long as I've studied music. And I find that, and it's interesting that you say that the uneven phrases tie a piece together organically, uh, because as a as a performer, we're look we're always looking for uniformity, and. Uh-huh. One of the cool things about maybe not as much Bach, but definitely Beethoven, is that you have this four-bar phrase, four, like like almost without fail, four bars, four bars. I mean, the piano sonatas, the string quartets are a little looser, but like in the symphonies, mm-hmm. the concertos, and with Mozart and Haydn, it's it's not as much even. It's a lot of five-bar mm-hmm. phrases, a lot of yes. two plus threes, yeah, and and obviously like pop music, rock, jazz, it all it's all like the 16-bar blues, you know, 32 bars. It's all these sets of four. I'm just kind of curious how you as a, as a composer think about phraseology when you're writing or when you're listening. I think as a conductor, you're looking for those shapes, at least the little conducting I've done. I've really tried to find where the fours and the eights were. But as a composer, I'm always thinking about going over the bar line and how can unexpectedly this last just a couple bars longer? And somehow, I don't know, that freed up the kind of asymmetry of the counterpoint in being by having this really severe structure of eight-bar groups of phrases. So there's always the asymmetry going against the symmetry, and I just set it up differently. But uh, I don't know if we went back to bright blue music. I, I mean, I should look at that. I don't think that that falls in four and eight bar phrases. I'd have to get out the score and look at it. Because again, I was thinking, just do this for six bars or maybe for 12 bars and then do this. I was thinking that once I got too box-like in my phrases, then it would get boring. So it was kind of just, you know, putting the horse before the cart in one sense and the cart before the horse in the other. But it's always this idea of symmetry versus asymmetry.
You're known for wind ensemble, orchestral. I didn't know as much about your choral music, particularly the, the newer album that has come out recently and Four Proverbs, which is an amazing piece where you talk about really integrating the text to the music. Can you talk about maybe that piece in general and your work with choruses, but also what prompts you, what inspires you to compose for various ensemble types? Is there one that you kind of predicate to or be curious about that? Oh, well, I'm, I'm interested in writing for anything. I mean, the real challenge is writing for opera because then the text starts controlling. A composer has to be very careful not to be a slave to the, quote, master of the text, because then you give up all sense of form. I mean, Wagner came up with that great idea of a leitmotif, but then you have people like Verdi and Mozart writing very strophic, almost song-like forms. But still, you have to tell this story. And I was working on a television opera in 1993 for Channel 4 TV in London, and I was having a real problem, just like I wanted to write my structures and I couldn't because there was a story to tell. And so I put that project aside and I sat down and I said, well, you know, if you took the shortest kind of meaningful phrases, Proverbs from the Old Testament, and then you you wrote a melody with those syllables above it, and then in, in pushing the melody notes around in the way that I mathematically develop notes of music, that those syllables kind of who would attach themselves like flag or signposts onto the notes would start moving around too. So you get other nonsense. And then as the notes would come back into their original form, the syntax of the words would come into focus. That was kind of the conceit of those four movements of four proverbs. And so I was thinking about the voice as an instrument and the voice as abstracting from the text was abstracted. But I thought I could get away with that because there would be a lot of repetition. But in a proverb, there's a bunch of meaning that's even if you say the proverb, better a dish of herbs where love is than a fatted ox and hatred with it. I mean, you almost need to hear those words again to ex know, understand exactly what that means. So I thought, well, that would be perfect for something that would undergo a lot of repetition. Jumping forward to two albums ago, Last year, when I released Psalms and Canticles, the idea was to take the style of being, but then do what I was doing in Four Proverbs. And it kind of didn't come out the way I thought, because the whole idea of Four Proverbs is that you mix up all the syllables. And so I started doing that kind of thing of mixing up all of these Psalms and Canticles. And I, I didn't like it. So in the end, I had all these new melodies and I needed new words. And I thought, well, you have so many hundreds of translations of the Bible, and they're all so different. So I would put eight translations of the Bible out in front, and I would take a little bit of these words and a little bit of those words and then shove it in with all the new melodies so that she was singing about the same thing, but they were actually new words. And that was my conceit to make that work.
You were quoting a couple of people who I assume you have worked with in, in some capacity, Steve Reich and Philip Glass. They said the only way you're going to make it is to start your own ensemble and work your ass off for 20 years. And if you're lucky at age 40, you might get some attention. If you were to add on to that at age 60, what would you say? And at age 60? Well, I would say it this way, just due to the sheer luck of life that when I arrived in New York, it was a very different kind of game plan. They were writing revolutionary music and they couldn't get any of the Cognoscenti's attention for 20 years. Uh, I mean, they were poo-pooed and they were doing concerts and art galleries, not in concert halls. And, and it took a long time for the culture to catch up. For me, I arrive in New York in 1985 and the biggest publisher in the world says, oh, we want to publish everything. And at first I thought, no, no, that's not the game plan. You know, Reich and Glass taught me that, you know, not that you have to struggle, but that I want to do my own thing until I really find, you know, a body of work. And well, no, 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 we can promote you, Michael, and we can make sure that you're heard around Europe and other places that you wouldn't be heard. So I signed the deal. And of course, it worked out really well because in those days, a full service publisher really promoted their composers in a way that publishers don't do today for a number of reasons. So I got all the things that in Glass and Reich's generation that they wanted and took 20 years just sort of handed to me. So here at age 60, again, trying to become a young composer again, I'm thinking, now maybe I have to go out on the road and start performing. And I was thinking, well, I could, you know, like hire my musicians for the recording and put on a concert at town hall or something. Or maybe I could write a solo vehicle that I could be hired by orchestras. And this is exactly the way you were told that you had to start off way back 40 years ago. So it's come full circle. So you're just going to do the Benjamin Button effect. Yeah. You're going to just do the reverse. Yeah, the reverse of everything. <laughs> You'll have your own ensemble at the age of 80 that you tour yeah, around. Yeah, that's right. I'll work up to that. Well, Michael, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you today. The albums are Time, Being, and Sky. You can get them wherever you listen to your music. And thank you, Michael, so much for joining me on One Symphony today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony. Thanks to Michael Torkey for sharing his music and insights. You can get more info at michaeltorkey.com. Works of his heard today include Ecstatic Orange, Time, Bright Blue Music, Being, Sky, and Four Proverbs. Thank you to all the amazing performers featured on today's show, including David Zinman in the Baltimore Symphony, Michael Torkey and the Michael Torkey Orchestra, the American Modern Ensemble, David Allen Miller, Tessa Lark, and the Albany Symphony, Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs. Catherine Bott and the Argo Band. And thanks to Michael Torkey, Ecstatic Records, Albany Records, Columbia Records, and Decca Music Group for making this show possible. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Thanks to Mary and Diane for making this episode possible. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Music